As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Welcome to the Phil Hay Show that's brought to you by The Athletic and The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan and from The Square Ball is Michael Normanson. Hello. And from The Athletic, here is Phil Hay. Hello. You can get signed up to The Athletic now if you're not already. 33% off the full price of a sub. All the analysis, the in-depth features, Phil's on there along with the very best football writers on the planet. You get ad-free versions of these podcasts as well via The Athletic app. You can find that at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. That discount, Phil, this week. There's an overview of the transfer window, if you can bear it. We've had a much deeper look at uh, Brendan Aronson as well to see exactly why it is that, that Leeds, having not got him in January, want to go back from in the summer. And something to look out for at the, uh, the early part of next week is an interview with Diego Flores, um, Bielsa's old assistant. Um, it's been done by Andy Mitten, our uh, <coughs> Manchester United writer, um, who has known Flores for a long, long time and tracked him down in Argentina. And I think, I suspect, without having seen it, that that will be a great read. To read all that and take advantage of the sign-up offer, theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And speaking of transfers, then we are into February, Phil. Your worst time of the year is now over. It was a pleasure from start to finish. <laughs> I can say that with total sincerity. <laughs> um, well, on our show uh, earlier this week, we scored the transfer window, a mighty two out of ten. Mm. What would you score it then? Well, I heard that Michael went for zero. I think I, was, I think I was eventually persuaded that signing Harry Winks would, for no reason would have been worse. So I upgraded it to a might two. Have, might have put you into, into minus scores. Yeah, we, we didn't waste money, was Michael's argument. And he's a thrifty man and he yeah, was pleased yes, about that. Yeah, and I suppose as well, didn't sell anybody of any note. But I think I'd be falling into the ballpark of three or four on the basis that, yes, they've still got Rafinha and they've got Phillips and players of, of that ilk. Nobody, Do you hate Bobby Camber that much that you wanted to see him out? Oh, bless him. Nobody of massive significance has, has gone, but they are a body down because Cody Drammy's gone to Cardiff and they haven't signed anybody. So I think it would be very difficult to score it, especially highly. I mean, we've spoken at length throughout January, tracking the progress or non-progress of this. We spoke about needing that extra body. They opted not to do one in the end because they couldn't do Aronson. So what's your take on that? Would it have been wiser to get just an extra pair of feet in? I think so. Um, and I kind of felt that from kind of late, late October, early November onwards as players were starting to drop like flies and, and injuries were starting to increase and, and then you really felt the pinch in the run-up to Christmas um, with the, the Man City game and the Arsenal game where where the team were just really struggling to, to compete at that stage. 
the form has been better since the turn of the year. Couple of wins, but then obviously the result against Newcastle, which I think panicked people again and kind of missed that opportunity to pull so far away from the bottom three that you feel like there's enough breathing space there that you really could have a, a bad patch and, and survive it no problem. And left the club kind of within, you know, within arm's distance of um, of the clubs who are, who are down at that level of the league. But with Aronson, I mean, there, there was the initial bid for £50 million. That was up to, to £20 million. The, the second bid that went to Salzburg, they barely responded to and barely paid any attention to. And it, it was very much their way of saying, this guy's not for sale. He's not going to be leaving in this window. That was pretty much the message that they'd been given locally in Germany in the build-up to the transfer window. And it, it didn't change at any stage. I'm absolutely certain that there would have come a price whereby they would have said, look, that's great money for Aronson, let's take it. But I think the feeling at Leeds was that the premium on top of his actual value would have been a good five to ten million pounds. And and in the end they didn't go back with a third offer because it was pretty clear that Salzburg were not going to negotiate or were not going to make it easy and, and were probably not going to do a deal full stop. So really, as of the middle of last week, certainly the back end of last week, it was apparent that they, they weren't going to do going to do a centre mid. And as I've said before, they will look at going back for Aronson in the summer. They think he's very keen on the move. They think it's a deal they can get done in the summer. They like him a lot and they like him enough that even though it hasn't happened in this window, they will try to, to do it again. But it is, again, it's the second window where they've gone for a centre mid and it hasn't happened. You know, it was it was Gallagher and O'Brien um, in, in the summer. It was uh, it was Aronson this time round. It was the only bid that they made. Two of them, obviously, but he was the only, the only player that, that an offer was actually tabled for. So yeah, once again, we come into February and you know that area of the team that we seem to have been talking about for months is, is still no stronger than it was. With this having made it into the public arena, it's not going to look great if Aronson then ends up somewhere else in the summer either, is it? Well, it's absolutely the risk. And you know there, there is, I guess, the chance that somebody else bids with more money or with more clout or with the ability to offer him football that Leeds can't, i.e. Champions League. I know he's getting that at, at Salzburg anyway, but Champions League with a club who can go further into the competition realistically than than Salzburg can. They, the, part of the reason they didn't want to sell him is that they do have this um, knockout tie against Bayern Munich coming up and this is the first time they've been through to the, the knockout stages. So they didn't want to lose him and they didn't want to decimate the squad and, and they didn't want to make changes that were going to, going to unsettle things. Everybody here and in Germany seems to think that come the summer they'll be far more open to approaches for him. But you know, Leeds won't have carte blanche to, to do this as, as they want. I think they hope that because... Anderson is receptive to the idea of coming here and they like him and they've, they've clearly shown the commitment and the fact that they do they do want to sign him and, and will wait to sign him. I think they hope that they can they can control this and they can make sure that, that he is um, their player. But there is an element of risk in that, definitely. When we spoke to Victor Orta in your absence when you were off um, having your op, he said to us that when they assess transfer targets, that they end up with a, with a shortlist of, of two to three players for every position. And yet, these last two transfer windows don't seem to reflect that in that when Gallagher fell through, there wasn't anybody else that they opted to get. Um, they wouldn't go the distance on on Lewis O'Brien. And and again, here in this window, it seems like they were hell-bent on getting Aronson and that's fallen through. So where is the alternative? And I know it's never that black and white, but w- w- why is it that we're not seeing this sort of in the real world? Well, it's the other factors that apply as well. So you might have a list of Gallagher and O'Brien, for example, but Gallagher chooses to go to Palace and then with O'Brien, you don't like the asking price and Huddersfield won't particularly budge on it. So you decide to to leave it alone. And it's worth saying again with O'Brien that that was as much Bielsa's decision as anybody else's, that the, the price Huddersfield were looking at, can kind of 8 million plus, he didn't think was particularly good value for money. You know, it, it, and, and the club the club felt the same, but you're right. It leaves you ultimately with nobody because those haven't haven't happened. 
And again, you know, you, you have the filter of having a shortlist and or having names on, on a list, but A, need being able to, to afford them, B, them actually being available and clubs being willing to uh, to trade with you, C, B, also being happy to go for them. And, you know, if, if we pick out one other example of a player that he wasn't, Noah Lang, you know, last summer, that is somebody who, who Otter would have put on a list and said, I think this is a good option. I think this is somebody with a lot of potential future resale value, somebody who could, you know, who, who could definitely enhance the game with us. But it wasn't right for Bielsa, so they didn't do that. Dan James, on the other hand, who's been on the list for God knows how long, was right for Bielsa. So, so in the end, they did pay £25 million for him. But I was listening to your podcast earlier in the week and I thought, I thought Moscow spoke a lot of sense on that. He was very supportive of the club and, and backed a lot of what the club are doing. And, and I'm also in, in the camp that thinks that the model at Leeds, you know, is is a good one. Is a good one. There's a lot to like about it. There's a lot to to admire about it. I think what you have to be careful of always is that philosophy or dogma, if we want to call it that, or principles, whatever it is that that we're saying, don't kind of translate into paralysis. So you don't find that you don't sign any players because you have such narrow parameters for who you you'll sign. You don't sort of compromise yourself by always being resistant to short-term options. Perhaps occasionally there are windows in which short-term options might not be a bad idea. You don't hamstring yourself by looking at the 23s and assuming that every single 23 will be good enough. You've got a really big crop there, but it tends to be the case at most clubs that with 23s, it's a small group ultimately who make it, particularly at Premier League level. You know, It's not to say there are not lots of good players in there, but there are lots who will go, go by the wayside and you'll be left with a core. So it is really that thing of making sure that you don't sort of tie your own hands by having sort of a strict philosophy that, that you can't bend from at all. And it did feel to me like in this window, it would have made sense to make a few additions. And I think the fact that nobody has come in tells you that Bielsa and the club have a feeling of confidence that they will stay up. I think they have enough faith in the squad that it will be fine. And, you know, Moscow was making that point. He was saying you know, they clearly have a lot of confidence and a lot of faith in, in the existing pool there. I think the fact remains that come the end of the season, if if Leeds were to get into trouble and if they were, God forbid, to go down, I think the club and Bielsa would, would stand accused of ignoring some of what was kind of staring them in the face at this point. But equally, if they get to the summer and they've stayed up, then they'll feel vindicated. I think from my perspective, they've opted not to lessen the risk of going down. They haven't increased the risk of going down, I don't think, but they haven't mitigated against it in a way that an extra body might have helped to do. That's probably a very fair way of putting it, actually. You've seen investment from clubs round about them and, and below them. I would still question, I'd probably leave Newcastle out of this. I thought Guiamaris in particular was a, was a good signing for them. I do question how many of the players bought by the clubs round about Leeds I would really have wanted here. I do think Van der Beek is a good player, very good player. He and, and Harry Winks were both put to Leeds as, as loan options, not by the clubs themselves, but by intermediaries. It's worth saying that they were offered Winks back last summer as well and said no to him. So realistically, that was never going to change in this window. It would have been very hard for Bielsa to have gone from the point where he didn't want Winks four or five months ago <laughs> to suddenly wanting Winks now. Van der Beek, again, was considered not to be the right fit. And I can't explain what that exactly means, but I think you can surmise that it's a, a lot of factors. It's fitness, it's perhaps exact style, Possibly ego, possibly the thought of will this guy play? You know, is is he going to be in my starting lineup? And you have to factor in that. You know, a, a very expensive player with with quite a high profile. Is he right to put into the dressing room? For one reason or another, they they didn't take that up. And I think that is 
the sort of thing where if you're on the outside looking in, it can be a little bit confusing to to see Van der Beek being considered and then kind of disregarded as as somebody who might help. But it it you know it does all just feed back into the the way that Bielsa manages a squad, the type of players he likes to work with, the the way he builds everything up, and and what he looks for in a group of players. But I, I think you're right; they haven't given themselves a better chance of staying up through this window because they haven't done anything. But I don't think necessarily the chances of going down are higher either. Do you think the club have been burned a bit by Jean Kevin Augustin and the the fact that he was seen as a a signing that we needed to make and maybe everything wasn't quite right, but he was kind of considered the best we could do. And I guess you would look at someone like, I know people have been pointing this out, of Deli Alley and Van der Beek and Todd Cantwell and these players who wouldn't have necessarily been a good fit, but are probably good enough players to play for us, if that makes sense. But it's like, don't go with something if it doesn't feel completely right. They've all gone off the boil a bit. That's that's the common thread between all those players. They've all sort of peaked at an earlier mm-hmm. point and they're just on the downslope and you don't know quite where they're going to end up. Which begs the question of, do you end up with buyer's remorse? And um, Ollie Kay at The Athletic wrote about this earlier in the week that in his view, and, and he did explain this point of view and he went through it in quite a lot of detail, there's a higher chance with signings like that of you getting your fingers burned because they are they have gone through a dip and it's not to say that they're going to recover to the, the, the standard that they were at previously. And you could almost say that that's true of um, Augustine. You know, he'd, he'd been at PSG, he'd gone to Leipzig it kind of gone wrong at Leipzig or he drifted out of the picture at Leipzig and then had gone to Monaco on loan. And you were bringing in somebody who'd slightly lost their way. You were kind of gambling on what he used to be or might still be, but you were gambling on that without evidence of him actually being at that kind of peak at the moment. And in the end, it just didn't work with Augustine. And, and that you know that tribunal at Cass is coming around with Leipzig very, very shortly. I don't think Augustine per se is affecting what they're doing in January but I do think that they still think a lot about the lesson from that which is that if you sign the wrong player or a player who isn't ready in January or isn't doesn't quite fit A, Bielsa probably won't play him much um, but B, he, he probably won't stand up or stand up to what's needed in the second half of the season and probably won't make much of an impact so it becomes wasted cash and, and to be quite honest if you bring in Van der Beek and he hardly plays then it is a waste of money on the one hand you could say that from a PR point of view, it lets the club say, look, we've signed this player, we've given him to the manager, the manager's decided um, that he's that he's going to pick other players. But I don't think that's particularly productive. Um, and I mean, at this this stage of the season, people ask me a lot, why don't the club just say to Bielsa, you need a low knee, you need players here, you need, you know, you need to strengthen this area or the, the squad as a whole. And the reason is because it was agreed right at the outset that he would have total control over these things. And, I don't think at this stage of the season you want to be rocking the boat to that degree. I think there might come a time and it might be in the summer and actually I think it has to be in the summer that everybody has a fresh look and says what's working here, what's not working here, what can we change, what what needs to be different. But I think mid-season where you're trying to keep clear of the bottom three and you're trying to make sure that you do head into mid-table and you do stay up, this is the time where you've you've all got to be on the same page and it does not help to start in fighting with people. And what of uh, Minamino and Kennedy then, two of the names that came up? Well, some of it was probably the strangest aspect of the entire window, I think. And, and it said a lot about the window that it ended with this kind of doubt about whether he would be leaving. Does he want to go? I suspect he would like to go and get games. But I, my reading of it is that on the basis that he's still here, he hasn't done what Drame has done, which is basically say, I want to take this move. You know, I, I want to be out of here and, and I want to go, which is why Drame went to, to Cardiff. Again, we'll, we'll obviously ask Bielsa when we see see him before the um, the Aston Villa game. 
And the crucial thing with this is how he feels about it. You know, that was the same with Drammy. We, we were well aware at the time that the club didn't want Drammy to go. And on that basis, Bielsa hadn't really wanted him to go. But when push came to shove and Drammy made it clear that he did want to leave, that was that, you know, and, and he was gone. And Bielsa was clearly, I thought, pretty, pretty frustrated about that. But it was ultimately his decision to say, OK, if he doesn't want to be here, he, he goes somewhere else. There are players in the 23s who would like to get games. There's no doubt about that. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd refer people back to the Drammy pod, podcast where we, we kind of chatted that over at, at length. But with Somerville, you had this strange situation where, you know, there was interest in, in from Hamburg in Germany. Um, Altmar in, in Holland were mentioned to me as well. The clubs who want him because there are plenty of clubs who, who rate him. And what you had was a, a situation which I think from a distance must be really peculiar, which is that you're saying... Ideally, we keep Somerville because he's right for us and, and we want to, you know, we want him in the squad. But if he goes, if he insists on going and we decide to, to let him leave, the sort of person that we might get to kind of fill his boots is Minamino at Liverpool. And that leaves people thinking, on the one hand, you've got a, a young winger who's played minimal number of first team games. And in order to sort of cover for him, in inverted commas, you're signing a Japan international who's played at a really high level with Salzburg and, and at Liverpool. And I, I was saying in the transfer review that Leeds are probably the only club in the world where an unwanted departure of an academy player leads to, you know, interest in Minamino at Liverpool. The idea that Minamino would come in and sit on the bench instead of Somerville is it could could look very, very back to front. And they did look at Kennedy at Chelsea as well. But it was all pretty tentative um, because the bottom line was if Somerville was staying, nobody was going to come in. They needed somebody to fill that and to provide another wide option if he left but if he stayed that was that Minamino was never going to come in and be the attacking midfielder that um, Aronson was going to be That it wasn't a, a kind of like for like swap there it was you will replace Somerville except it never got off the ground and, and there was there was nothing doing so it's kind of been a weird window there have been weird aspects of it and I think the Somerville situation was probably the weirdest but he also just doesn't want footballers does he he doesn't want any, any new ones well Somebody earlier this week made a really good analogy and hello to Tommy who it was who, who said this to me. He said, in my view, Bielsa looks at players like chess pieces, you know, chess pieces on a board. So some chess pieces might be carved in a way that look more attractive to you. But when it comes to it, the pieces are still useful to him regardless of necessarily who they are. And, and what I mean by that is that if he looks at Somerville and says, Somerville is perfectly suited to what I do you know he's perfectly good enough he is adequate you know he fits he knows how we train he knows how we coach how I coach he knows how we play he knows what he's supposed to do he knows how he fit he's meant to be and remember that these are all absolutely non-negotiable aspects for Bielsa then saying to him yeah but Minamino's a better footballer or Minamino has more experience or Minamino is this that and the other doesn't necessarily make a difference I think in, in his head he thinks that well Somerville can do this so there's no real reason to to trade things and I suppose it it's a total antithesis of the FIFA generation, isn't it? You know, the the idea that you, you sign players anytime you think that you need players or anytime anything's going wrong, the squad isn't good enough, so you do this and you spend money and, and everything else is just not how it is. But as I say, I, I can perfectly appreciate why somebody might have been looking at the idea that Minamino comes in if Somerville leaves and, and, and thinks to themselves, that sounds a little odd. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. We'll look ahead to the Aston Villa game in part three of the show. First of all, let's talk about Rafinha, who was subject to some interest in the transfer window, or was he? Calvin Phillips, also subject to some interest. And the two of them having a little bit of fun on Instagram, laughing at the reported 50 million price tag in the wake of Rafinha's performances for uh, for Brazil. First things first, actually, do we know if he's carrying a knockback from that Paraguay game? It looked like cramp. Um, so waiting to, to hear on that and waiting to see what the, the outcome of it is. But looking at him after the game, there didn't seem to be any great issue with him, um, particularly. So hopefully he's fine. Um, so two months and, out now then. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, um, it, it's, well, I mean, there's always the risk with, with international duty. And if ever a player could have done really with a little bit of a breather, you know, winter break, it, it might well have been him. But he keeps on doing it and scored again for Brazil against Bolivia. As it, it just had a huge impact internationally. It's, it interests me really that it's taken him as long as it has to get a look in with Brazil. I understand that he was at Rennes, so, you know, a little bit off the radar, you could say, although they were heading for the Champions League. But he'd been at Sporting um, in Lisbon prior to that. And obviously he's coming to the Premier League, but even in the Premier League, despite what he was doing, it was still a little bit of a wait for him, him to get in uh, into the Brazil squad. And then you look at him in the Brazil squad, not even just in the squad, but in the team. And you wonder how it is that he hasn't been playing for them for, for ages. I mean, he's, this is a really big year for him, obviously, because there's the World Cup at the end of it. And he's gone from being outside the building to, I would imagine, to being an automatic pick at the moment. He's he's playing that well. And if he stays fit and, and he stays in form, then he is going to start a lot of games at the World Cup. And, and obviously, it's, there's no guarantee that a good qualification campaign leads to a great World Cup. I mean, you can look at Bielsa's Argentina in 2002 to, to realise that. But Brazil have absolutely coasted this and, and are looking looking very, very good. And I think in Qatar, the stage will be set for him to do some very, very impressive things. Will he still be a Leeds player when he does those things? Yes. Yeah, let's say yes. Um, just um, just to save some any incoming fire. Um, <laughs> I mean, on, on the basis of on the basis of value alone, you would want him to be here beyond the World Cup because anything he does in that adds pound signs really, and is going to make him going to make him even more of a, an asset. And I can see him having a really big tournament there. I really can, and I can see him being one of the outstanding performers in the competition. And he just seems like his scope to improve, even now, even at, at this level of talent, is is very wide. He's unreal, isn't he? I mean, the more I watch of him, the better and better he seems to become. And in that Brazil side as well, with no, no disrespect to Leeds players, but when you put better players around him, he seems to thrive even more. Which is always the sign of an elite player, and is in no you know, it kind of explains why people will be paying so much attention to him because he can get better, and I think he he probably will. There's just this quiet confidence with him where no matter what the no matter what the competition is or the stage or, or the opposition he just seems pretty comfortable with it oh he doesn't look a, like a player who suffers at all from nerves I think for a winger he's pretty consistent um, someone said to me the other day that they, they thought he'd been fairly up and down this season I think he's been Leeds best player 
And I actually think that it's been unfortunate that it's been harder to see the absolute best of him because Leeds haven't played too well. Um, I think if they were in right in form and if they were as dominant and in the sort of the sort of fettle that they normally are in under Bielsa, I think you would be seeing even more from Rafinha because there have been games where it seemed to me that he's kind of taken it on himself to try and carry the team and to make something happen out of nothing. And that's not really what Bielsa's football or tactics are, are about at all. It's not about individual talent overriding the the system you know the system is supposed to let the individual talent come out and I certainly feel that in the games where Leeds have played well West Ham being by far the best example he was just head and shoulders above absolutely everybody despite you know Harrison getting the hat-trick on the day and what of this bid from from West Ham a a mere 50 million a mere 50 million which I don't think was going to sign Rafinha and wasn't going to sign Phillips either and I think one of the narratives around West Ham towards the end of the window was that they seemed to be bidding very late for players who they were highly unlikely to get stroke weren't ever going to get at all. It's worth, if you have the time, looking at the comments from Simon Jordan, the ex-Crystal Palace chairman, um, who was an owner who was on TalkSport earlier this week. And he was having a dig at David Sullivan down at West Ham and, and, and was saying that in his experience, this is his view, not mine, but in, in his experience, Sullivan had a habit of telegraphing bids that were either not really bids or were never going to actually land the player that, that they were going for. In Jordan's words, you know, it looks good on paper and it sounds good in the media, but it was never going to happen. There's no dispute from Leeds End at all that there was contact from West Ham about both players. But what we were told was that there was never an, a formal bid for them. And it was seemed 100% clear to me at the start of the window that neither were going to be sold at any stage. I mean, if, you, if you're saying right at the outset when that story broke about um, Rafinha going to um, Bayern Munich I think it was on Christmas Eve and you know the, the club just poured cold water on that straight away and said that will absolutely not be happening I think when you're, you're kind of knocking back the suggestion that he might go to Bayern Munich you're highly unlikely to buckle at the last minute and sell to West Ham and, and it doesn't strike me as the sort of destination that Rafinha and Phillips will be looking for anyway I'm not saying that West Ham are not a very good Premier League club because they are no doubt about that but despite where they are in the league and despite the fact that they've been pushing on for the top four, which they're not going to get now because they haven't, you know, they haven't strengthened the squad themselves in the way that they needed to, I don't think. There's a different level, isn't there? And if I'm talking about Rafinha being potentially one of the outstanding players at the World Cup at the end of this year, I don't think that means a transfer to the London Stadium. And if Rafinha's available for £50 million, I mean, how many times over could the club sell him for £50 million? There must be at least a dozen clubs who would very happily take him at that. Well, yeah, and also... You know, when it comes to selling him, ideally you want to maximise his value and ideally that happens by having lots of people interested. And I don't think, in the way that Diaz going to Liverpool, you know, Tottenham were, were well in for him, thought that he was their player. Then Liverpool dived in late on because they found out that that was happening and they got the deal done. I couldn't imagine in a million years that the news that somebody, you know, West Ham had bid £50 million for Rafinha and had it accepted wouldn't then have conjured bids from other clubs who would have said hold on a minute you know we've got more clout than West Ham let's get in there and get this done but it stood to reason anyway that Leeds had to reject you know any approach for those two that for all the discussion about the um, you know the thinness of the squad and how you can add to it the one thing you cannot contemplate doing especially with the table as it is is removing players like Phillips or Rafinha from your squad and especially not at the end of a window where it's short anyway and the prices tend to be higher and you're you're going to get squeezed for the cash that you've got. It would have been absolute lunacy. 
Simon Jordan was saying, I, I found it found it quite interesting because it felt to me West Ham, and not just with these two, they were bidding for players abroad as well. It felt a little bit like being in for deals that weren't going to happen. Why do things like that happen in football? Well, let's not be partisan about this and say that Leeds went for a player that Salzburg were quite openly saying we're not selling either. You know, so it, it kind of kind of works in in both ways. I think the difference is that come the summer, you will see Leeds try actively again to get Aronson and they will want that to happen. I don't think you'll see West Ham coming back in for Rafinha or Phillips because they must know. And that was one of the points that Simon Jordan was making. He said, why did West Ham think that Phillips was going to go to them? I mean, just to go off on a tangent, I actually ended up down a rabbit hole on Tuesday because about sort of 10, 15 years ago, and I sent you a couple of these, Simon Jordan used to do a column in the Observer, which was absolutely brilliant. I mean, he just used to get into the middle of the ring and start throwing punches at absolutely everybody. And one of them is about David Sullivan, and he was referring to that on the um, on uh, the radio show that that he was on. You know, and the column makes the point that in Jordan's view, that is a that is a strategy of his is to make it look like you're being ambitious when perhaps you're not being as ambitious as uh, as it actually appears that that you are. And I mean, it's interesting actually in that column. Another thing jumped out to me, which goes back to what I was saying about. Elsa and kind of making sure that you you keep the waters nice and smooth at a time like this. Jordan was saying that when he was in charge of Palace, that there was one occasion and only one occasion where it was all going wrong, and he went into the went into the dressing room and bollocked the players on behalf of the manager. And it didn't work; it didn't make a difference. Things only got worse. And he realised with hindsight that in doing that, he wasn't helping the manager at all. And actually, as he says in the column, if you get to the stage as an owner where you feel like you need to go into the dressing room you've pretty much lost faith in your manager anyway. If you don't think he can sort it out, then what you're basically saying is, do you know what? I don't really trust you to get a grip of this. And the more I think about this, the more I do feel that if someone was going to be else and saying, no, sorry, you have to take a midfielder or you have to have a bigger squad or you have to do this, that and the other, even subconsciously, you're starting to say, we're not convinced anymore. We're not convinced. We don't think you're, you're getting it right. So as much as I would have liked to have seen bodies added, definitely, when I reflect on it, I think they had to be added with Bielsa's say so. If he wanted them, fine. If he didn't, fine. I think that's part of what's fueled the anxiety this time as well. The sense of powerlessness. And that's one of the, the difficult things about being a football fan, isn't it? It's that you've got to kind of just give yourself over to whatever's going to happen. You can't change the outcome apart from cheering your team on in the stadium or if you choose to boo them, boo them. Imagine being a fucking journalist. <laughs> you've got, you, you, you get told on Twitter... You need to sort this out. You know, the same players. I'm sitting at home going, I can't do anything about this. People do, do genuinely tell you to tell the club to get the finger out, don't they? I, I think we can, you know, we can write and we can reflect and we can give opinions and, and so on. And, and in the piece I was doing on on Tuesday, I was saying that, I, you know, I like a lot of, of what goes on at Leeds. I, I do. But I think there's always a danger of assuming that no, no, you know, no philosophy is fallible, that philosophies don't always go wrong. And just that careful aspect of making sure that if there are problems there, you kind of appreciate them and you accept them and, and you deal with them. But you cannot you cannot deny what's gone on over the last three and a half years. You know, it's been difficult this season, but it has been three really, really strong years under Bielsa. And I, I'd go back to this again. I think when you have a period like that, you do buy yourself a bit of time, both him and the club, and you buy yourself a, a bit of leeway when it's not going quite so well. We spoke about the, the weird psychology of the transfer window as well, how you just want some new players to get excited about and to almost, it feels like it gives you a boost even if they don't actually improve your team. It's like mm. the, the way, even in the, the worst of the Chilino years, that's somewhere when we signed like 15 players, there was a tiny bit of you when 
what if this works? What if they're all good? And then very quickly you can kind of you can kind of cross off about six or seven of them instantly and go, you're absolutely useless out of these. <laughs> and then over time you, you cross off another four or five. But there's still that little bit which gives you hope. And Spurs must Spurs do it every summer. They buy a load of players and then they try and get rid of them all within like they didn't buy anyone for years, then they started buying people. Now they want rid of them all. But when they as they're buying them, there'll have been a bit of something in their fans going, Okay, this is good. We're buying players, we're we're moving forward. It doesn't always necessarily work out what, like what that. I think you're often doing, what you find football clubs doing, and I think they're all guilty of it or they all indulge in it to a certain extent, is they're buying time, aren't they? Because football football's a progressive sport, right? You always kind of live under the illusion that things will get better from here. That's kind of what the dream is all about, isn't it? Like one day you'll win the FA Cup, you'll get promoted this year, you will, you know, you'll sign a better player to improve on that one. Well, that, that was 16 years in the EFL, wasn't it? Yeah, you, you're, you're constantly living on the idea that it will get better from here at some point. And the truth is, it, it often doesn't, doesn't does it? Three teams still go down. There's a, there are only a limited number of trophies to win, aren't there? That's Ex- the thing. Exactly, but you kind of you kid yourself into thinking, well, it'll get better soon, or we'll get this season out of the way, and the next season will be better. And actually, that's what we've fallen into this time. We finished ninth, and then it's been worse this season. So we've kind of, oh, we're all a little bit upset and a little bit angsty about it. But just going back to the idea of football being a progressive sport, that's what signings represent. It's the, the notion of moving forward and then you buy yourself the time to find out if they're any good or not. That's what signings in theory represent. You know, you can look but at it. But, but even if they're bad as well, like, like for example, Augustine like proved to be an absolute dud of a signing because he just could not get up to the levels that we needed him to get up to. But for a while, he was the answer, wasn't he? He he was the, the let's see how this one goes. But when he gets fit, look at how talented he is in the YouTube videos. He might yet come good. That That is why you have to recruit in a really sensible and professional way, or at least you have to plan your recruitment in a really professional and sensible way, because otherwise you, you do find yourself just jumping on signs, thinking, you know, this will appease the supporters, this will give us an extra body. But the final part of the decision has to be, is this going to work? And you can't say yes or no, but you can usually put some likelihood on it you know if you do the research and you look into the character and you analyse them properly you can in your head probably get a percentage gauge of how confident am I about this I mean I don't feel like transfers generally are healthy for anybody I don't mean the actual transfers I mean the prospect of transfers and January's worse than the summer because it's so short that it's not like if you're Leeds and last season you're safe at the beginning of April say you know, you have that kind of slow build up to the actual window and then the window lasts for about three months and it's a long period of time. And, you know, if you've nothing by the end of June, it doesn't necessarily matter. I mean, you can obviously think about Bielsa needing players there and then to, to get them ready, but you've still got time, you know, so you can still get Dan James right at the at the very end of it. January is so short and sharp that I tend to find that if by December the 27th, 28th, nobody's really getting linked or there's no sign of much going on that's when the twitching you know that's when the, the twitching starts to begin and it just builds and it builds and it builds and it builds all, all the way through January I have to say I've seen fans of a lot of clubs moaning this month a lot of clubs seem pretty dissatisfied Spurs I think just about got it together towards the end but you know when they were losing Diaz to Liverpool it was not pretty West Ham I think frustrated by what's gone on there Manchester United haven't really done anything you know and, and so on and so on the one slight difference at Leeds this January was that the argument for signing players was definitely there and not just in the sense of, well, it's always good to have something new and it's always good to update and to refresh. You know, you, you could make a much more concerted um, argument for why somebody, you know, a player in a certain position, i.e. Aronson's, needed to come in or, or should have come in. But generally, transfers do drive people mental. And with that in mind, then, 
what what does your fantasy summer look like in terms of what what leads do? I mean, your fantasy summer might involve sitting on a beach somewhere and being cut off from the world of transfers, but fantasy summer might involve another brain operation. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I need some time to think about that. I right, you've had ten seconds. Ten go. seconds. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think. There have been periods this season where I've looked at the football and I've looked at Bielsa and I've thought to myself, is this winding down now towards the you know the end of his fourth year and, and the end of, of this era? And you know the, there are still times when I, I look at that and think, yes. Then you go to West Ham and you look at that team and that squad producing that performance and you say to yourself, how many other coaches would get that out of those players? And you remind yourself that you should never go too early with this. You know, like you... Once you lose Bielsa, you will lose a, a lot of things. And you can never say in football, so perhaps it would be for the best, but perhaps it wouldn't. Perhaps it would be very detrimental. I think my ideal summer would be that he carries on, but with a significantly enhanced squad, that he's open to the idea of the squad being significantly enhanced, that Leeds are able to do that and have the money to do it. Just to give them the potential to be all they can be under him and with their budget. And it's not that this squad is run aground and is, is completely finished but it, it would be pretty naive unless this, you know the, the running from here is spectacular it would be pretty naive to look at this season and say look we don't need to make changes everything's fine you know this can this can go on there is going to have to be a bit of a fresh look at everything I think one of the disappointments of January for me is that the sense that we've not given all the tools maybe that we could to one of the world's great coaches and th- this is a one shot deal with Bielsa we might only have, sorry to say it, because someone listening is going to hate me saying this, but we might just have 17 games of him left and then he's gone. And this, this era, and it's been such a special era, is over. And I would hate to look back on this season and think we could have given him more. The one thing I always try to say, though, when it comes to how the squad is and, and how you recruit, is that it's not one person at all that is influencing this. So you couldn't say that the club are not giving Bielsa the tools because there are circumstances where... Bielsa doesn't want the tools that he's being offered. Equally, there might well be tools that Bielsa wants that are out with the club's budget. You have the recruitment, which does take a very, very narrow view. You know, the, one of the things about Aronson, one of the reasons that they will go back from in the summer is that even if it isn't Bielsa next season, when Bielsa leaves, the club have no intention of deviating away from the style of play that they've developed. They've got it at first team level, but it has, as the months have gone on, filtered down through the 23s, the 18s, down into the academy. So you have players at all levels who are playing in this way and, and learning in this way. And it, it's not as if it can be a complete transition without any alterations at all from Bielsa to another head coach. But the idea of completely tearing everything up doesn't appeal at all. So if Aronson is good for Bielsa now, he'd be good for Bielsa in the summer or he'd be good for a different coach because they will try to recruit in a way that allows it to, to you know, to move from one coach to another without massive, uh, massive disruption. So... You know, there, there are loads and loads of factors in it. You do have narrow recruitment. You do have a budget that has a, a, a top limit. You do have a head coach who doesn't take many players and is quite, you know, is, is picky about, about who he wants. It's not kind of down to, to one person. But you're right. I don't think the club this season have allowed themselves to be as good as they could have been. I think that's, and when I say the club, I mean absolutely everybody. It hasn't gone as well as last season. That's perfectly obvious. We're back in action on Wednesday, the 9th of February. Some significant fixtures taking place ahead of that. This weekend is the FA Cup weekend, but Burnley playing Watford in the Premier League, glamour tie. And then spinning ahead to Tuesday, we've got significant fixtures, all of them actually, 
Newcastle Everton, that'll be a biggie, um, West Ham Watford and Burnley uh, in action again against Man United at Turf Moor before we kick off. Be sitting down for Burnley Watford, definitely. Excited already. Yeah. Can't wait yeah, again. Yeah, box off your Saturday evenings. <laughs> We're going to need a, a good few weeks now for this to to level out. The table's all over the place and your eyes are always drawn to the points and the, the positions, but you know, you when you start getting down to the bottom of the table and you see how much ground Burnley have to catch up, not just on points, but in fixtures played, it's a long, long way from being a level field where you can see exactly where everybody is. It's a big, big week for a lot of clubs. I think it's a very big week for Leeds. Fixtures elsewhere are going to dictate that, definitely. But also, Villa away and Everton away. I think on the back of a transfer window where you haven't done anything significant and where really you're sort of projecting confidence that you will be okay and you will stay up, this is a week where you need to kind of prove that. And it's funny because if you get to the end of the of the week and they've taken four points from those games or six points from those games, the kind of attention on the transfer window will just disappear completely. That is how it will go. And and it felt a little bit like that actually after they won away at West Ham. You know, the, the kind of fixation on it and, and the desperation for incomings did subside a little bit because people started to think again, I'm oh, probably probably okay here. But these are these are the sort of games you've got to got to win, got to take something from. What do you make of the appointments down the bottom end since we, we last spoke with Lampard and, and Hodgson? Hodgson, given that he's to the end of the season, is probably not a bad appointment for Watford. I think you've far more chance of getting out of trouble with Hodgson for the remaining games than you had with Ranieri, who, I mean, everybody seemed massively down on Cisco at Watford, but Ranieri's record was dreadful. I mean, really, really awful. And I've heard a bit of discussion about whether really he had enough time and, and everything else, but I don't think you can come in and have the kind of trail of defeats that he's had and say, you know, you need to give me a bit, a little bit longer. I mean, ultimately, they're, they're going to get relegated at going along like that. So Hodgson, I think, is is not a bad one for for Watford. Lampard at Everton seemed to me that Everton, again, just didn't really know what they wanted to do and, and didn't really know who or what it was that they were, they were looking for. They seemed to be without a grand strategy there um, and without, without a grand framework for scouting, recruitment, everything. It was all Rafa's, wasn't it? That They sort of gutted the whole thing, put Rafa's people and then sacked Rafa. And also signed players for him and sold Dinia down to, to Villa, who you know will, will presumably play on, on Wednesday night. And then, yeah, changed it. And without wanting to fluff Leeds up, it's not difficult to look at Leeds and say, that is a club that, at least know what they're trying to do and, and have a clear idea of how everything should work. There's, you don't really see any chopping and changing at Leeds at all. Quite the opposite, actually. Whereas Everton, uh, just at the moment, just cannot find the sweet spot of a, a project that works and, and goes forward. And I don't know, maybe Lampard will do okay there, but it doesn't seem to me like a, a, an appointment that's going to transform them. Just looking at the Wednesday fixtures, actually, a couple of significant ones playing in these slightly earlier kickoffs because we kick off at eight. Um, we've got Man City, Brentford, we've got Norwich Palace in the seven forty-fives. So it is a really, really significant week. Do you know what? Let's get the, let's get it out of the way now. We're going to win at Villa. I want so bring on the the social media and the Twitter abuse now for jinxing us, etc. But we're going to go there and get something because Leeds, just like I felt like at West Ham, now you know very occasionally we just pull these things out of the bag. This feels like a significant week where Leeds will stand up and be counted in the face of adversity. When the fans get most nervous, we pull the result out of the bag. This is one of those weeks. They've had some very good results at Villa under Bielsa. People remember the the late roof goal, but particularly I thought the 3-0 win last season 
which was a three 0 win at a canter. They're very dominant, and even Dean Smith said after that, you know, we we just want as soon as Leeds scored, we just were not in in the game. You know, they they were on a on a different level. So I'm pretty optimistic about this, and and I think I think Bielsa will realise the significance of this week. I think you'll know that these two games back to back are a really good chance to put some wide open space between him and his squad and the bottom three. And I'm looking forward to his press conference ahead of Villa because prior to the win at West Ham, there'd been the issue with Cody Dramey and he spent a lot of his press conference talking about Dramey. But getting into the nuts and bolts of how he felt about it, how he saw youth development, without saying this, and you know, he he, he did say at the time, I wouldn't criticise Dramey, I'm not complaining about this, but you could tell that he was quite hurt by the fact that somebody had said, look, I'd rather go and play elsewhere and, and be coached by somebody else. And when he gets into that mood and when he really fights his corner you kind of feel like you're building towards something. Um, and I'd like to think we'll we'll get that next week. And and I, I feel as if, and I often feel like this, good result at Villa could easily lead on to a good result at Everton. And there's that thing in my mind where I think Gerard hasn't faced Bielsa before. And it's a very unique style of football that Bielsa brings to the Premier League. A lot of managers have said it in how they prepare uh, and how they have to set up and, and the physical demands of that game, that fixture. Maybe, just maybe, we can catch him on the hop a little bit because... For all he might be able to prepare, you can't really know what you're up against until you face it. And also, most of the players at Leeds have been able to have a bit of a breather. Like, this has been a, a concerted break for them. It's not that they haven't been training. They were doing murder ball on Sunday morning, but they have had a bit of time off and, and they have had a, a bit of a chance to draw breath, which I think everybody needed. Gerard's done pretty well, I think, since he's gone into Villa. They've picked up some, some steady results. Uh, they've had some defeats as well. But I think for a manager new to the league and, you know, picking up a team who were pretty out of form under Dean Smith and, and seemed to have seemed to have lost the, the momentum completely. He's, he's not done badly at all. The, the thing about the you know, Bielsa's style, it's quite interesting in the Premier League. You have to adapt a lot, really, game to game, because there are a lot of sides who play in, in very, very different ways, but nobody's team plays quite like Bielsa's. And you're right, you know, Gerard will have to, to adapt to that. I think you know, Gerard is a, is a generally confident guy, and I think he'll look at his resources in the squad and think that that's a game Villa can win as easily as Leeds can. But it's, yeah, it's there to be had. I think it's one of those games where if we can get our noses ahead and then cement our position, it's there to be won. But if we let it be too open or we go for ages without scoring, much like we saw against Newcastle, really, if we don't hammer a nail into the coffin, then we could maybe suffer at their hands if they get their act together. But I think if we can go at them in the first half, get in front, it's one of those that we could win. Are we expecting anyone back for this? Significant. I'm thinking in particular, um, obviously we've seen... Yeah, Cooper and Phillips, but we don't expect them back. But Bamford and um, probably Forshaw will be the two main ones. Forshaw took part in Ball last weekend and was hoping to train fully this week. Uh, so he, I think, should be okay. I interviewed him before this this winter break and he said, you know, Newcastle was just going to be a little bit too soon, but he, he didn't see any problem being back for Villa. So that is a, that's a definite bonus. Cooper and Phillips, um, there was the picture of them back out on the grass I'd I'd be absolutely staggered if either of them were involved at at Villa I think they'll need longer although we have seen with Phillips previously that he doesn't always need a massive recuperation period once he's actually fit to to train again but Bielsa had said about both of them uh, a little while back it'll be March before we see them and I think I'd said that the club was sort of quietly hopeful particularly with Phillips that it might be sooner than that because he was doing really well and I think I think Cooper has been on on a good track as well Bamford we did ask about after the Newcastle game and Bielsa said he had his doubts you know he said I'm not convinced that he will be he had this problem with the base of his foot and we'll you know we'll see where he's at next week I'm, I'm not so sure that he will be involved 
But Creswell looks like he's back out training as well. I don't imagine Shackleton will be um, a million miles away. It is kind of the, the return of players who, who have been out and the club have said all season, as soon as the injured players come back, it's, it's a different squad. I, I think the problem with that is that we're now in February and it feels like we've been saying that for months. So the critical thing here will be them coming back and staying fit. Phillips on the bench should be a bonus, I think, even if you just manage to get him on the bench, if he's not 100% ready yet. I think just the feeling of Phillips being back in the mix and likewise Bamford as well. I've, I've started to feel more and more that, you know, with Forshaw coming in, it almost becomes a little bit easier to accommodate the absence of Phillips. Not entirely, and nobody will ever be as good as Phillips in that role. But, you know, suddenly you, you have an option and you have a way of, of working around it without having to change things up too much. It was pretty apparent against Newcastle that it, it was the kind of poacher striker finisher that, that they needed. And Bamford does a lot for the team. I think he, he has been missed. He hasn't played anywhere near enough this season because of injuries. And, and that's been that's been a problem. And likewise, when he comes back into the team, a bit like Phillips, they should be better. They should be better. They, they, they can be a better team than they've been recently. What is the base of the foot problem? Because this seems slightly mystifying to me and I would dare say the wider fan base. What What is that? That's, that's Stood on cool. Lego. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds like that, doesn't it? In the middle of the night as, you, as you're trying to grab the baby as it's crying. I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly what's happened to him and we'll ask Bielsa a bit more about it. Um, it might just be an impact injury. You might just get kicked on the base of the, the foot. It might just be a, a muscle or a bone thing that's been uncomfortable. But it has kind of been one thing after another for Bamford and every time it looks like he might just be on the horizon, something else happens. But in the end, if he was to to play in the last I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten games, um, it could make a, a huge difference to this season. And that's always been the thing with Leeds right from, from the outset. Results haven't been great and there have been times where they've had most of the players available and they haven't played particularly well. But with all your players available or, or most of them available, you do feel far more confident that at some point you're going to move back into better form. Would you bring in another centre-forward in the summer? Good question. Good question. I would think about that seriously. I think I, I think I would decide whether or not Gelhart is going to be... Bielsa would never have more than two centre-forwards. You know, and it seems pretty clear to me that he's not set on Rodrigo as a nine. You know, I, I thought Newcastle, Newcastle told that story in the sense that you know, there was James up front, then there was Roberts, then there was Gelhart. At no point was it Rodrigo who moved into that position. And at no point has Rodrigo ever really had like a long run, in part because Bamford's played so well. But, you know, Bamford has been out for most of this season and it hasn't been Rodrigo that's been the answer. Okay, he's been injured as well, but, you know, going round and, and round in circles. If it's going to be Bamford and Gelhart, then I suspect, and, and it's Bielsa staying on, I suspect he wouldn't want another one. If it's Bamford and you're not quite sure who, then... Yes, and, and I think there were people making an argument for bringing a centre-forward in in January. I understood that, even though I didn't think it was going to happen. Um, I, could, I could see the argument, and, and more, to the, more to the point, I could see it after the Newcastle game, because you were thinking, if Bamford isn't coming back anytime soon, who, to use a really sort of mundane phrase, is sticking the ball in the net? So yes, they did also have a little think about bringing in a, a substitute goalkeeper, second-choice goalkeeper. I think they, they think a lot of class and as a long-term prospect, but I, I do think there's a question mark over whether or not they've got enough enough to lean on um, if Melier was to to get injured because he's such a massive part of the team. Um, but in terms of a centre-forward, I think that's probably something that needs to be discussed, yeah. If they did ever think about a second keeper, why did that one not carry through to uh, to fruition then, do you think? Signing a goalkeeper for Bielsa is pretty tricky anyway. Signing a replacement goalkeeper becomes even more difficult because, first of all, you're looking for somebody who 
is accepting the fact that they will not play if Melier's fit. You know, you you are kind of saying, look, come here and just provide a little bit of cover. And there are keepers out there who will do it. You know, you had guys like Stuart Taylor who had spent years being understudy and over a long, long career hadn't actually amassed that that many um, appearances. And obviously he ended up at Leeds eventually, but was still predominantly second choice behind um, Silvestri. And then on top of that, you've got a keeper who not only has to accept that, but has to fit into the the specification for a goalkeeper, which is you know, very, very good with her feet and, and all the things that you see in Melier that, that have, have to be done, you know, regardless of what you think of his distribution, that is what he's asked to do, you know, is, is to pass the ball around. So something tells me that in January, if, if you just want a keeper who'll sit on the bench and you can bring on and we'll make some saves, then that's, that's fine. But again, if you're looking for somebody who's going to fit into the, who's going to fit the profile, um, for want of a better phrase, it's probably a pretty tricky time to do that. So I fancy us to get something from Villa Park. I you, do. You said you fancy a little sniff. Michael, yeah, I think so. we're, we're doing this, we normally preview the games on our show before we do the Phil Hay show. This time though... My pessimism has had to wait. Your pessimism has had to wait for our show. So so what's it going to be? Um, if Bamford is back, we will get something. If he's not, we won't. Hmm. I don't see it quite as binary as that, really. I, I think there is enough in the squad to get something at Villa. Uh, and... Again, I look back at the way they played at West Ham. West Ham were a bit lethargic that day, but Leeds just did what they do well um, on that afternoon. They they used the space well. Click had a very good game, I thought. Rafinha was just absolutely on it right the way through, and obviously Harrison's finishing. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of quietly optimistic about it. I have to say, I say if Bamford is back, based on the assumption that Bielsa will not play Gellhart up front, and it'll be Dan James there or Tyler Roberts um, rather than Rodrigo or Gellhart, two strikers that we actually have. <laughs> Who would you like to see up front, Phil, against Villa if it's not to be Bamford? Because we've got Tyler Roberts as an option, we've got Gelhart as an option, but Dan James seems to be the go-to guy. I'd be going for Gelhart. Uh, I think I said before Newcastle that it felt like a game where you could play Gelhart. I felt at half-time against Newcastle, it felt like a game where you should be looking to him because of the chances that were coming up and because of the way Leeds were playing. It was looking for someone who would who would finish it off and... You know, you can't help but think to that goal he scored at Chelsea, which was a proper poacher's finish. You know, timed the run beautifully, got himself into the right area. Lovely ball over from Roberts and, you know, bang straight in at the near post. I think he stands out in the absence of Bamford. If it is not going to be Rodrigo, and part of me still wants to see Rodrigo get a decent streak at nine. Given form and impact recently, I think I would be leaning towards Gilhart. And what do you do with your left wing then? Is it Harrison or is it Dan Jones? That is a very, very good question. I would say that the form is probably slightly more with Harrison at the moment than Dan James, but it's a toss-up really, isn't it? Funny, isn't it, how Rodrigo's ended up as a not number nine now, based on what you were saying there, Phil. Like, I'd like to see him up front. I thought his best spell playing for us was towards the back end of last season when he was in the number nine role, but Bielsa, because he wants to sort of utilise him in a, in a number 10 advanced midfield role, seems to want to stick with him there come hell or high water. I suppose if you've got a Spain international in your squad and you've got Bamford up front and Bamford is always going to play up front and Bamford's form is good enough to justify him playing up front in a system that only has one centre forward, you have to try and accommodate your Spain international elsewhere or you don't play him. And and at £27 million, there'd be very little financial sense in having an asset like that and, and never using him. So the thought might well have been in Bielsa's head that yes, he thinks of himself as a nine. Um, and I think of him as a nine. I have, I have to say... But because Bamford is going to play there whenever he's available, perhaps I have to try and mould him elsewhere. 
and perhaps have to try to create a player who can fit into this side even though he's got another centre forward ahead of him he's very creative is, is Rodrigo if you look at the, the stats you do get a lot of chances from him and, and more than just about anybody else but I don't I'm never convinced that the structure is quite right with him in the team I never feel like the press is as good as it could be I never feel like defensively they're as solid particularly when it comes to centre back stepping out or, or midfielders getting a bit of a of a run on them and it's one of those that just has not clicked yet and it's hard to know if it definitely will it's hard to know what might make the difference but I can't help feeling that games at nine might might help him Well it remains to be seen doesn't it and we will sit here in another week's time so we've got Villa on Wednesday Everton at the weekend we will record again and do the next show in between those two games so we'll uh, probably have a better idea about where this one's heading in the wake of uh, of Villa, you're heading down to it? Yes, I certainly am, yes. Well, enjoy the M6, enjoy the, the journey down. Are, are you training it? No, I will drive. It'll probably be uh, M1, M42. Um, Villa's quite nice and easy to get to, actually. It's not it's not bad. But no, no trains for me. Probably be cancelled anyway. <laughs> well, safe travels and do let us know how the journey and the game went from your perspective uh, inside the stadium as well. And we will uh, we'll do it all again this time next week at the Phil Hay Show on Twitter if you want to say hello. And you can subscribe theathletic.com forward slash leads pod for 33% off. We'll return next week. We'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show.